Hello. Welcome to EB Chat, the exciting new podcast and place to be. We get to e-meet and greet industry players and decision makers. We'll be asking and discussing some tough questions from drivers on the street to top CEOs from major EV organizations, entrepreneurs, legislators from all over the globe. Stick around. This is a different kind of show. Let's rock it. Yes, indeed. Welcome. This episode is brought to you by Fluke, the world leader in the manufacture, distribution and service of electric test and measurement tools. Fluke, keeping your world up and running. I am so pleased to welcome Paul Vosper, CEO of Juice Bar EV. Paul is a seasoned business development professional with more than 25 years of industry experience, a graduate of Georgetown University and Duke University School of Law. Paul has a deep understanding of EV infrastructure, clean energy, real estate and smart city initiatives and how public policy can bolster our quest for a more sustainable society. Paul is also a fellow Brit. Welcome aboard, Paul. It's great to have you on the show. Well, welcome to the show, Paul. It is a pleasure and an honor to have you aboard. I'm really, really intrigued. Where did you get from being an entrepreneur, business development expert to EVSEOEM? Tell me a little bit how you got from your garage to where you are now, Paul. <laughs> well, originally I was involved in commercial real estate and worked for a couple of large firms. Got to the age of 50 and you have that sort of panic attack when you realize that your tombstone is going to say he bought and sold real estate and it didn't feel like that was a great life lived. And so my partner approached me and said, would I be interested in helping him get this business started? And we bought a business that had been around since 2009. And we learned the EV charging world pretty quickly from a fire hose. But what we saw when we bought the company was a couple of things. One, it was clear to us that we would all be driving EVs at some point. You could argue about how long it would take, but even in 2018, it was clear that we were moving in this direction. And the second thing was that the chargers, you know, generally that are out there are not ready for mass adoption. You know, it's sort of the classic story where the technology, people will put up with some of the hassles of charging when they're early adopters. But when it sort of comes to my mother trying to figure out how to put a charger in her car, they're expecting the same experience they get at the gas pump. And we refer to that as sort of get the basics right. And it's not rocket science. It's the charges have to be reliable. They have to work. They have to be easy to use. And they have to be safe. And so, you know, we've added a lot of bells and whistles. But at the base of everything has to be, this has to work 100% of the time. And it has to be easy to use. And as an EV driver myself, that's still not the case. We're still building to something, but it's very much an early adopter market. And it's not going to be suitable when we get to mass adoption. Now, it's pretty awesome that Juice Bar recently became the first EV charging station in America to be made in America. Tell me a little bit about that. My partner and I both belong to a group called Social Ventures Partners. It's an organization that grew out of some executives at Microsoft. But the philosophy behind it is to bring back advanced manufacturing to the U.S., primarily as a way to create 
will recreate the middle class, right? sort of the classic manufacturing jobs that help people move from low-income jobs to salaried employment, 401k plans, healthcare, etc. And in our minds, at least, it's a way to shrink the income gap. And in Connecticut is a perfect example of that. You know, Fairfield County in Connecticut is probably one of the richest counties in the country, yet Connecticut writ large suffers from a large number of manufacturing businesses that have either moved offshore or moved away or moved to another state or closed down. And so that was a commitment that we made as part of the mission of the company. It turns out, actually, that you can make stuff in America and you can make it priced competitively. Our chargers are actually cheaper than the offshore chargers. And it's partially because you know labor costs are about 20% of the cost of making a charger. The other 80% is mainly componentry, screws, wires, etc., And that's all pretty much priced the same, whether you buy it in China or you buy it in the U.S. And so we found that maybe we could save some money on labor costs, but ultimately you'd pick it back up again in shipment and duties and so on, and you lose quality control. So if I order a 1,000 charges from China, they show up at the port of Los Angeles and there's something wrong with them, I can send them back, but I've now got a 1,000 chargers that I need to deliver that I don't have. So you know, we like the quality control aspect of it. The key thing that, that's harder in America is you know, you've got to have a strong supply chain expertise because finding the people is the hardest part. Finding the people who make the, the components is the hard part. The Chinese are very good. They've got you know, effectively a commercial version of Amazon where I can type in you know, any component I want and people will bid for it if they bid for that business. In the U.S., you've got to know where these people are. But they can make the same things that the Chinese make, and they can make it better. So the quality is better, it's more reliable, doesn't deteriorate over time. And it saved our bacon in the last six months with all these supply chain issues. We've actually decreased our delivery times, whereas you know, everybody who's bringing stuff in from abroad is you know, now having to lengthen their delivery time. So we've gone from five weeks to three weeks delivery time. So that supply chain saved our bacon. You mentioned a couple of them, but what were the challenges in being strictly made in America, Paul? Certainly the one that I've identified is the fact that we had to hire people with 30 years of supply chain expertise so they can find the person who makes the widget really well. But you need to know who that person is and where they are. They're not easy to find. There's no Amazon, in this country at least, for commercial componentry. So that's one thing. The other thing I would say that one of the things that happens when you offshore anything, you lose connectivity with your product. So you now, two or three variations into the product, it's being made in China or it's being made in India, you effectively lose the muscle memory of how to build that charger. And so, you know, when something goes wrong, we are very dependent on somebody else to help fix it. Whereas when you keep it local and you keep it in the U.S. and you keep it a self-manufactured product, you know every aspect of it and every change that's made and how you got there and what went right, what went wrong. And you retain that muscle memory that is, I think, crucially important. Your product is out there in a wide variety of commercial customers, including retail, healthcare, academic, government. What are the similarities and differences between those different clients, Paul? We originally had a sales force that was geographically focused, and we shifted that about nine months ago to vertically focused. So salespeople learn what is important to their particular customer. That has been a lesson learned for us. But most important is dwell time. So 
If you're a hotel, you've got probably 12 hours to charge the vehicle. If you're a supermarket, you may have an hour and 50 minutes. So the power of the charger needs to fit the customer and how long that customer is in the building. That's number one. But then you start getting into the corporate world, particularly the office buildings. Some of the technology we're developing, like vehicle to grid and vehicle to building, becomes an enormous cost saving to them. We can effectively reduce their electricity bills by 50 to 70% using the batteries in the car. So that works really well in office, doesn't work at all in a retail environment. So you have to really know, like anything else, what's important to the customer, what are the limitations that we're facing, and making sure that we put the right product or the right solution in place for them, either in terms of power or in terms of technology and sophistication. You know, the municipal world, you know, is primarily a fleet world. And so Made in America is very important to any of the government work we do. Certainly the state and municipal and now the federal government prefers that if they're going to buy goods, they're buying it from somebody who's employing Americans to build that product. So that, you know, it becomes a virtuous cycle as a result. So I'm a founder and president of a company called 365 Pronto. Very proud that we use that local certified compliant workforce. Having them work on a Made in America product is really, really appealing to me. Now, you just mentioned something that's very close to me, V2G. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I want to zone into multifamily dwellings. I have a son-in-law that works for one of the largest property owners and real estate companies in the US. And he was telling me that they can rent apartments way easier if they have electric vehicle charging space. Yes. And I know that's one of your focuses with your company. Some have said that we, mm. it's like a chicken and the egg. You know, we need to install the chargers before we get the tenants or we get mm-hmm. the tenants. What do you think the most significant barriers to implementing EVSEs in multifamily dwellings? Do we need the cars first or should we put the infrastructure in later? This is partially the reason why the Biden administration has been focused on putting money in the infrastructure bill and and hopefully the reconciliation bill too, is that there is a chicken and egg problem. And we've seen this in London. We've seen this in Europe. As soon as people see the chargers physically, they will buy an EV. And we see this in our customer base. So a tenant shows up with an EV, asks them to put a charger in. They put a charger in. Everybody else in the apartment complex says, oh, great, I can now get charging where I sleep. And so they'll go out and buy an EV as well. And so it starts to become a virtuous cycle again. But it requires that initial braveness, if you like, if that's a word, to put the charger in. But once you've done it, it ends up becoming self-fulfilling. Now, what we're beginning to see, particularly in the office market and the multifamily apartment market, is that people are now making decisions about where to rent based on the availability of EV charging. That's already occurring in Europe and it's happening on the West Coast. It's happening up here in the Northeast. But the danger is that you're losing tenants because they're going online and looking to see whether you have a charger. And if you don't have a charger, they're not even going to bother to show up and view the apartment. And the same thing happens in hotels. You know, my son's starting in college in a couple of weeks and it's a long drive. My wife picked the one hotel in town that doesn't have an EV charger. I called the manager. I said, look, all of your competitors have chargers. You're losing business. And there's apps now, particularly in the hotel and travel space, that will marry the hotel with your charger needs. And so clearly people have spent the time and effort to build that app out because they see that as a key demand. I mean, we're beginning now 
to hit that tipping point where you can see charges physically, the way you sleep or where you work or along the road or in the public municipality. And I must say, you know, I applaud Elon Musk for opening up supercharged charges to all cars. That is a big deal because there are a lot of Tesla superchargers out there. And now I don't drive a Tesla. I drive a Jag I-Pace. Now I get to use the superchargers. And so that just added 30% more chargers to my charging ability. So I applaud that because that is a big deal in terms of creating visible charging everywhere. And once the charging is there, what people are beginning to recognize is that EVs are more powerful, faster, more fun to drive, economical, and good for the environment. So you know, quite frankly, it's better technology than a gasoline or diesel car. And so the only real hurdle is that range anxiety. And now, a word from our sponsors. With so many different types of EV chargers out there and so much voltage behind them, it's more important than ever to have the right tool to safely diagnose, troubleshoot, and ensure that it's working properly after repair. When it comes to safety and lives online, there's simply no room for error. That's why our friends at Fluke recently launched their FEV100 adapter kit for electric vehicle charging stations. As the only provider in the marketplace with a built-in GFCI trip test, you can keep yourself or your technicians safe and protected from electric shock by detecting ground faults or the presence of dangerous voltage at the ground terminal. Fluke is the leader in safety, and the FEV100 is going above and beyond by exceeding the SAE J1772 standards. And when you connect the FEV100 adapter to a charger, you can determine where the problem really is without needing to have an actual electric vehicle on site. Be it a Type 1, Level 1 or Level 2 EV charger, you can safely conduct needed tests with just one tool and without ever having to open the station itself. If you'd like to learn more about the FEV100 and how Fluke can keep you and your workforce safe from harm, visit fluke.com. That's F-L-U-K-E dot com. Now let's get back to rocking with Paul Vosper. You mentioned superchargers and, you know, I got quite a bit of experience installing level twos and level threes and fast mm-hmm. chargers and whatever, you know, if you had a budget of $500 million, it's a lot of money, but if you had a budget of $500 million and you could put four times as many level twos in as you could, the number would be more than that. What would you do? Would you put supercharger in there for infrastructure? You know, it's a dilemma, right? Because the reality is the price differential is 20 to one. Mm-hmm. So a level two is 20 times cheaper than a level three. Incredible. And level three with longer battery ranges, you know, my car does 230 miles. That was considered good when I bought it 18 months ago. Today, 350 is good. By the end of the year, we're going to have 500 mile range cars. And by the next couple of years, 750 miles. So when you have 750 miles of range in your battery, I mean, probably my longest trip is from Connecticut to Washington, D.C. I can get to Washington, D.C. and back with range to spare on 750-mile battery. I'm probably not going to use a Level 3 charger. And even today, you know, Level 3s account for less than 5% of the charging environment. So if you look at the math, the answer is very easy. The answer is you put just Level 2s in. The problem is that we as consumers typically buy cars not for your average trip but for your longest trip so you know somebody says once a year i go see grandma in boston i want to make sure i've got a car that's big enough and comfortable enough to make that trip 
And so you need those level threes on the highway to convince people to switch over to EVs. But on the math, it's clear that level threes are really a very small niche of the charging environment, but they are the most visible. And so I hate not to answer your question, but I think in the short run, you put in level threes in the medium to long term, it's all going to be level twos. Yeah, you know, I live in California and I think the data is roughly 80% of the pollution that's caused in California is by vehicles that do less than 50 miles. The average commute is 30 to 50 miles. So Mm -hmm. even the smallest battery will accommodate that. Exactly. Let's talk about reliability and product. Now, I'm an O&M guy, operations and maintenance, and I'm a big fan of your unique game changer, like the cable management system. In mm-hmm. fact, you know what? I made a lot of money changing cables where the cars are driven yeah. over them. So you've, yeah. Just, yeah. you've addressed that. That's pretty awesome. Tell me, does the mechanism on your product require any periodic maintenance itself? Not really. I mean, we occasionally get a critter that finds its way in there. One of our oldest chargers has been out since 2009 is sitting in the airport in Hawaii, sitting outside in the salt air. And it recently went down, the first time it had ever gone down. And when our maintenance guy opened it up, there was a gecko had found its way in and gotten fried. But we typically like somebody to take a look inside there once a year, make sure there's no water getting in, no dust getting in, you know, make sure there's nothing obvious. But these are pretty much fire and forget. Because these are connected chargers, we can pretty much see a problem developing with the charger before anybody knows it's happening. Typically, it's overheating. There's something gone wrong, and it's not cooling the way it should. And we'll see that a long time before any problems occur. So we can actually quite often get in, fix it before it actually goes down or causes a problem. But no, these are pretty much sealed units. They're bulletproof. The weakest part of any charger is the cable and handle because that's the actual piece that's being handled. We use a cable and handle assembly that will not break if a car rolls over it. It's a rubberized, over-molded system and designed for that abuse. And the cable management system, unless someone's abusing it, will keep it off the ground anyway. So no, there's not a ton of maintenance on these things. So I'm going to put you on the spot and I ask all my guests this question, okay? And I'm talking general, certainly not talking about your particular product. Mm. Serviceability, operability, and availability of our present infrastructure. That's our present infrastructure. You're an electric vehicle owner. You're a driver. How reliable do you think it is right now on a scale of 1 to 10? Give me your honest number, 1 to 10. Where are we at right now? Five at best. Okay. To put it in anecdotal terms, I mean, when I'm using the charges on the highway, probably 20% of the time I have a problem. Now, That's somebody who knows the technology, right? So if I'm having a problem, God knows what the general public is seeing. Now, it doesn't mean I'm not going to get a charge. It just means I've got to call the 1-800 number, have them reset the charger, whatever it is. So that's not the failure rate. But, you know, about 20% of the time when I plug in, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Now, that's improved. Certainly over the last 18 months, I think the quality of the equipment is improving. But we're still probably at a 5 at best. We need a company that goes out there with a qualified team nationwide that can take care of that. I think I know one. <laughs> so I'm an ex-rock and roller. You know, policy bores me, but I have to get engaged in it. Okay, lately we've seen lengthy discussions in Washington, D.C. as bodies of government across the country, ways to reduce our reliance on fuel cells. What do you see as the two or three best policies or incentives to jumpstart us into adoption, Paul? Sort of ironically, the fact that Joe Biden has been talking about EVs 
we've seen the impact on our business. So even before dollars started flowing, just using the bully pulpit has been impressive. I'm not going to use that as my two things, but I mean, I think there's a couple of things. One, we worked very hard on passing what's called a TCI bill, which is basically you tax the carbon on wholesale gasoline and diesel, put that into a fund that can be used not just for charging, but for electric school buses, improving rail transportation and low carbon infrastructure. It didn't get through this session in Connecticut. But when you look at the economics of that, it's a very smart way of doing it because you're effectively taking the cost. And look, gas taxes and what we pay for gasoline does not reflect the damage that gasoline does to the environment, to the climate. So by putting a tax on it and requiring people to pay for the damage they're doing by using that product and using that money as a way to encourage people to move into low carbon transportation options, I think is very smart. I think the other thing that is very important is the fuel standards. And so the EPA is moving to a 50, I can't remember exactly the number, I think it's 52 miles per gallon by 2026. That's going to force the automakers to put out more battery electric cars. There's no way for them to hit that number with their existing gasoline fleet. So that forces the hand. If you combine that with what we're seeing in Europe, where new car sales of gasoline and diesel vehicles will be banned by 2030 to 2035, depending on the country. What that has done in Europe is actually people are now buying electric cars because they're scared of the residual value if they buy a gasoline car. Because, you know, you buy a car today and five years from now you go to sell it and you're only a couple of years away from a ban on new car sales. People are very worried about that residual value. And you've seen it in the numbers. You know, in Europe, we're now in double digits in terms of new car sales, and it's going up fast. That's really the culmination of things, I think, that can make a huge difference in how much carbon we're using. You think the lawmakers are missing or don't understand certain stuff about EV infrastructure and the technology? What do you think they're missing, Paul, if anything? It's not like any new technology. It takes a while to understand not just the technology, but the ramifications of that technology and how many things it's going to disrupt from real estate to automakers to the oil and gas industry to the utility companies. And what I've seen, particularly here in Connecticut, is a lot of well-meaning legislation, but nobody tying it all together, right? So you've got to look at the impact of all of that legislation and say, okay, how does this all work together and how does this advance our goal? And so I think what they're missing is the speed of adoption. And I think they're also missing the degree to which we need to treat this on a war footing. In a climate change, I was reading an article yesterday that said the Gulf Stream current that goes up the East Coast and across to England is failing. And if that fails, the UK is in you know the same latitude as Newfoundland. The UK becomes a tundra and the East Coast becomes a much colder place. We are really at some pretty scary tipping points. This is not a time for half measures. This is a time to really treat this as if we're in a war footing and to marshal resources to solve this. And I think that, if anything, what they're all missing is just how much time we have left to sort things out. At best, we have 10 years to decarbonize the economy. Otherwise, we are in deep trouble. I took an expedition to the South Pole to actually witness for myself Mm. the glaciers melting. And absolutely, we need to acknowledge and educate I think that's what it is. It's education on what we're doing. 
fundamentally, our generation has missed the opportunity. If we'd been dealing with this in the 80s, and you know, if people like the Sierra Club were starting to warn this was a problem, we all ignored it, me included. Now we're going to be handing over one hell of a mess to our children. And they're going to have to dig out of this hole we've created. And hopefully, we haven't dug that hole so deep that they're unable to dig out of it. But we've now gone from avoiding climate change to now mitigating it. Because even with the best will in the world, we're not going to go back. We can't. We've already done too much damage. It's now going to be, how do we mitigate the worst impacts? Talking about making a difference for our children. Let's just say you're in charge of a $500 million fund EV infrastructure, okay? Where are you going to put that money, Paul? The most important thing is to decarbonize the grid. You take a dirty grid like Connecticut's and an EV gets the equivalent of 88 miles per gallon. But the great thing about EVs is as you clean the grid, you instantaneously clean the transportation system versus gasoline, where if you say all new cars have to have 50 miles per gallon, it takes 12 years to get the old vehicles off the road and the new vehicles on the road. With an EV, because it's plugging into the electric grid, every time you improve the grid, you improve the carbon savings. It has a multiplier effect. So to me, the most important thing is we've got to clean up how we make electricity and we've got to stop using coal and natural gas and move to renewables. And I hate to say it because a lot of my green friends don't like it, but we have no choice. I think we have to look at nuclear. It's a controversial statement, but nuclear has moved on a long way since you and I were kids. Right now, it's the only source of low carbon power that is not reliant on solar or wind. Unfortunately, as much as I hate to admit it, it's a technology that we're stuck with and probably have to embrace for at least the foreseeable future. I totally agree on the nuclear energy as a source. Totally agree. So you told me you're driving a Jag. I'd love to check that out. So what's the wackiest thing that you've done in an electric car? The wackiest thing. <laughs> well, you know, the fun thing about it is, you know, as one of my young kids said, Dad, this is like having a you know, midlife crisis and buying a sports car without looking like a jerk. I don't have to drive around with a canary yellow Corvette. Just as he was saying that, a canary yellow Corvette pulled up next to me at a light. And the guy looks over at me and he's giving me that look. He's about my age, too. So we're both too stupid to be doing this. And he sort of burns rubber off, and I just blew him away with the electric car. And he sort of looks shocked to, <laughs> to do that. So I probably shouldn't have met that on a corded line. But anyway, my son looked at me and goes, Dad, you are such an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like having a 17-year-old around you to keep your uh, feet on the ground. Indeed, indeed. Well, sadly, Paul, we have come to the end of our show. I'm a big fan of your product, Juice Bob, so I'd love to follow up with you later on. Thank you so much, Paul. It was a great pleasure. So thank you very much. And I look forward to showing you my Jag. Come over and see where we're making the chargers. And would love to talk to you about how we make this world better. I'll keep you up on that. Thanks, Paul. You have been listening to EV Chat. This episode is brought to you by Fluke, the world leader in the manufacture, distribution, and service of electric test and measurement tools. Fluke, keeping your world up and running. I'd like to thank you, our audience, for listening in. And if you've enjoyed our conversation, you can subscribe to the show and leave us a rating wherever you get the podcast. This helps us get EV Chat into the ears of other EV lovers. If you think you'd like to be a guest on the show, contact me, Rue, at 365pronto.com. That's Rue at 365pronto.com. Visit the show notes for more information and links from today's chat. This is Rue Phillips signing off. I look forward to seeing you 
on the next episode. Ciao.